2: Welcome back. As we head into hour three, a little different today. One is we have to make sure we can be heard. We can't be heard. Is it plugged in? Let's make sure we can be heard, Lewis.
3: Working on that. Lewis
2: Holman is my in-studio guest. He is the managing director of Insight Analytics. Usually we do COVID talk. uh, He said he was so interested in the previous hour's conversation, though, he'd like it if we could stick to uh, that, culture and politics. And so we will. And uh, might as well just open. We we had some callers on a previous caller, if – Lou, you want to go through these calls with me? We can start there and move forward. I'd love to. Let's do it. Okay, great. We had a caller earlier who was – how would you put it, William? He was um, uh, dismissing the notion that there can be evil in this world. We too easily attribute evil to things that we should be more cautious about doing. Uh, Did I do Jeff in Phoenix? Jeff, I couldn't get to earlier. Jeff, welcome. You're on with Louis Hallman and myself.
0: Hello. How are you guys? fine. How are you? Doing very well. Great. Hey, so I've heard this thing before. You know. First of all, I'm going to tell you a certain perspective of mine. Uh, When I was 22 years old, I quit playing college football, and I went to work in a prison. And I worked in in Texas, and I worked on death row. And I'll tell you what, that is when I discovered what evil was. Mm. And I would love to take your previous caller and have him interview some people that I've met throughout the years and see what people have done. See, it's very easy to put a concept out there like Nazism or things like this when you've never gone and actually speaking to the, the people that are, were at Auschwitz. When you've never gone and interviewed, you know, it's very easy to put up these concepts because then that falls into the narrative that we're about right now, Seth. It's basically the thought process is everything is Good well if everything is good want. or
2: everything is neutral or everything should be uh non judgmental the the- let me just can remind, I something yeah I'll, I'll let you say this and just uh, speak in just a sec this point is kind of important to me, and it's this: there used to be a pretty universal understanding of certain things that were evil beyond the pale and about which there wouldn't be much discussion. Nazism was one of them. That's why I used it. I could give you others, racism, Marxism, communism, right, Jeff? But we used to, as a universal principle, understand that if you want to embody evil, we can give you examples. Nazism is one we tend to all agree on, except it isn't anymore. That's what we have done by the overuse of the Nazi analogy of the reductio ad Hitlerum. Is I believe we have denuded of it of its toxicity by making it so ubiquitous and prevalent, and to the point where people can't even understand what it is anymore. Anything, uh, uh, anything different than let's say Mike Pence's vice presidency, right? Anyway, Jeff hold that thought. I'll let Lou speak and then I'll go back to you, Jeff.
3: I actually really liked the the point that you made, Jeff, in that evil is so difficult for many of us moderns and and particularly Americans to understand because evil is something that we have made increasingly rare in our lives. We have banished it to the periphery in in a great deal of of, of ways. And so Evil to me is something that is fundamental in this world. It very much is like pain in that once you experience it, you cannot deny that that uh, it exists. Jeff, go ahead, sir. And
0: ab- Absolutely, because here's the whole thing. Most of these people out here in America who actually say they live a terrible life have never encountered real evil. Or it's poverty. Ridiculous what or poverty or any number of things. I mean... These people have no idea, and this is what—if you want to call somebody privileged—that guy was privileged. He—he he comes from a oh well, I can't really deny it or I can't accept it, blah blah blah. When your family's attacked, dude, you're gonna you're gonna figure it out. Right. This is what's so incredibly asinine to me is that people will not put themselves in other people's shoes. They—they they blame the police, but how many of them go ask for a ride along? How many of them go to the border and see what's going on? I mean, we speak from a perspective of looking at the TV and looking at our phone, and it's a freaking joke.
2: Jeff, um, do you think that our caller might have been thinking that there's not so much a thing of evil as there is um – Mental disturbing, uh, mentally disturbed, uh, perhaps a, a false mm-hmm. or needing Absolutely to be raised not. consciousness. That's ridiculous. Yeah.
0: Because he said, you know, he said that um, he didn't know if he could put people into categories yeah. because, you know, everybody had their own belief system. Right. Well, you know what laws are for, dude? Because we don't want to be taken advantage of by evil people, and they will do it. And that's what's happening right now in front of your eyes. And he said, oh, well, and then there was another thing he said about evil. Well, not everyone's evil. And no, not everyone is evil. But there's a lot of good people out there that are being deceived and contemplate or appeasing evil. They're actually making it so evil can run its course. Oh, of course. And I'll just say one more thing. Yes. Well, this evil is no different than the evil that Cain and Abel experienced. No di- different than the evil of Hitler, Mussolini, and it- the emperor of Japan. It's all about power over you and what you can. And then once I have the power over you, I'm going to dictate to you how you will live your life. Uh,
2: Jeff, I think that's its own form of special evil. Lou?
3: No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I I really do. There's something that has always captured me about the Cain and Abel story that he brought up. Um, in that it it really showcases uh that evil is callous and uncaring of the order of the universe, actively seeking to unmake it in fact um if you read the that biblical account it's the the interaction between um Cain and God is very interesting because God in some sense doesn't really seem mad that Cain killed Abel; he seems more concerned about. Abel's slipperiness and dishonesty and inability to uh, uh, accept the world as God had designed it mm. as, as the more principal part, mm. Mm. which always is, uh, has struck me as interesting and in that there could be something more evil about our – or more concerning at the very least about our structural understanding of the world than about our actions. Mm-hmm.
2: Let me, uh, let, let's, uh, oh, this is fun. Uh, Jeff, in surprise, is a, is a first-time caller. So, oh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Jeffrey.
4: Well, thank you, Seth. I didn't realize that I was going to get on so quick.
2: Well, and, we're delighted uh, to have you.
4: <laughs> well, thank you. I was, uh, this has been a subject which um, kind of um, took, in, I took interest in, probably this year, because I was reading in the scriptures, and I'm working now, and so I can't even go to the scriptures to reference it. But I remember in my mind, as I was reading, and what God called evil. And I was almost shocked when I realized such a small thing God has referenced as evil. And I wish I could reference at least that one particular one, but then I had an interest I said to myself he says I need to go through the scriptures and find out how many other things God is labeled as evil which we think would be you know not evil
2: like for instance
4: and... Well, that's where I'm. I'm stuck. I don't have a, for instance, for you because well, I, well, some I just of it remember was timely. the feeling. You could
3: also talk about the uh, the early mosaic laws. You could talk about numbers in Deuteronomy, for instance, wearing uh, a cloth of multiple different threads. I think I'm violating that particular rule right now. Well,
2: you aren't, but I might be.
3: Uh, Just based
2: based on our genealogy. (laughs) I don't know that you had to obey that rule. But that's what I meant. But some of the laws were about timing and the time and place, right, and the times they lived in and and that sort of thing. Some are less applicable now than others. Uh, Some commandments can't be fulfilled if you're going by the Old Testament. Some commandments can't even be fulfilled outside of the Holy Land.
3: And, And then, of course, you also do get to the fact that all of the Old Testament laws are effectively obsolete anyway with the renegotiation <laughs> of the New Testament and then all of the other theological ongoings from there. And that, that could be a very long show. I did not see that. We, we, could go, we could talk about scripture for quite a while, I'm sure. I, I'm
2: sure we will do more of it's one source. I get this question a lot, Lewis. Do you I get this question a lot. Do you ha and in fact I think Eric was the cause of it last time we did it on radio, if I'm not mistaken. But can you be a good atheist. Can you know good and evil without knowing God? I say yes. I
3: say yes, too. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think there's, there's such a thing as the natural law. There's such a thing as moral law that predated, uh, and that even predated the Bible uh, in some cases. Why are you smiling?
3: Oh, I'm just reminded of a, of a quote misattributed to Marcus Aurelius, you but perhaps I'll share it when we come back.
2: Okay, that's a good tease. Marcus Aurelius, when we come back, as is Rob and Doug and more.
3: Six zero two five zero eight zero
2: nine six zero. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. This is great. We're doing a show on good and evil. This is fantastic. And we have Lewis Hallman in studio to do it with. Uh, was I in the middle of someone here or I were we ready to go to the were... next? Oh, yes. You wanted to share us something yes. from so Marcus that, So there was,
3: a, there was a question that was asked yeah. in, the, in the last section right. about whether or not um, – uh, Evil can be understood outside the realm of religion. Correct. Yes. And so there, there's a quote I have. That is often misattributed to Marcus Aurelius. I wish I knew who actually had said it originally, but it goes something like this. It's live a good life. If there are gods and they are just, then they will not care how devout you have been, but will welcome you based on the virtues you have lived by. If there are gods, but unjust, then you should not want to worship them. If there are no gods, then you will will be gone, but will have lived a noble life that will live on in the memories of your loved one. And that's Aurelius effectively making the case for goodness irrespective of whatever theological condition you live under. So whether we we believe that that God exists and is just in something like the, the Christian sense, you know, we can see a case made for goodness. But again, even in the absence of that, the case for goodness is that it improves the lives of our friends and our families and it makes those who we leave behind better off. It, it seems almost self-evident. That yeah,
2: there are words that are self-evident. There are truths that are self-evident. And what's interesting to me about this line uh, – let me read the front front part again. Live a good life. If there are gods and they are just, then they will not care how devout you have been, <coughs> but will wel- welcome you based on the virtues you have lived by. And then it goes from there. It still presupposes a knowledge of good and bad. Sure. Right. Live a good life right and of course, this was written uh, maybe contemporaneously to the time the, at the time of the Old Testament, but certainly uh, without the understanding of there being one God, right right right, uh, but living a good life uh, religion can help answer that, but it doesn't in all cases have to right fair enough, absolutely, and I think it's why we can say that it doesn't in all cases have to. we can find atheists who are. Uh, moral. We can find moral atheists right. or moral anyone's, really, mm-hmm. Mor- moral, moral um, Sikhs, moral Jews, Christians, and um, even um, so, agnostics, Muslims. I mean, you name it. You can find morality. I, I have kind of a, a— Because humankind is capable. Humans are capable of morality.
3: Fundamentally. And, and not only that, but we're, we're very geared toward it, I think, as a result of being social animals. Mm-hmm. Morality is something that develops— When you have others in your tribe or troop, that's why I think to this notion
2: that we were hearing, and that this notion that there is no good or evil, that's what reduces humans to animals. Because I think Aristotle understood one of the gifts of humankind was their ability not only to engage in language but reason. The purpose of reason is to distinguish between harmful and helpful, good and bad. Right, exactly.
3: And and again, animals can't. You, you, you I mean, make us animals. We can see, we can even detect that there is some level of reciprocity, right. like in right. animals. Right. Rats have a sense of fair play. Right. They do. They they have an emergent morality around games. And instinct? so it's yes, no. <laughs> that's what I mean. It is a instinct. result of socialization that we have to act amongst each other, forces us to behave in ways where we will be able to predict these outcomes sure. stably. Sure. I can't engage in murdering and rape right. if I'm in a tribe who is also, you know, predisposed to see my actions and copy them because I will not last long. An animal
2: knows that if it attacks another animal of equal size uh, or of, of – of, of, let, me, let, me, let me start over. Me An a, animal knows if it attacks another animal, it will be attacked back correct <coughs> a human doesn't know that
3: i don't know what you mean a I,
2: human doesn't necessarily know that because not every human fights back we don't work off instinct we off we work off learned behavior good and
3: bad i don't know that that's entirely true okay. i would say that that not no no human will fight back under every circumstances but you could probably find a circumstance in which any human being would fight back
2: okay Okay, um, I don't know. We'll find. We'll we'll, we'll live this, a long enough life. We'll let me find let out. me use a simpler yeah. example, okay.
3: though. Again, back to these rats here. Okay. If you have, if you've got two rats in a laboratory, yep. right, and one of them is ten percent bigger than the other one, yeah. rats rats are very social. They love to play. Mm-hmm. They they like to wrestle, specifically. And if you you've got these juvenile rats, and one of them is bigger, it will it should win physically ninety plus percent of the time. Okay, but what's fascinating is that rats actually. So l- the little rat has to initiate play. This is true, very cross in, in a cross species sense. That the smaller, weaker organism is the one that that asks the other to play. You see it among children. You see it in rats. You see it in dogs. Uh, but if the if the big rat doesn't let the little rat win at least a third of the time over repeated iterative games, the little rat will stop asking the big rat to play. It's baked in. There is a morality of fair play in something as small and insignificant-seeming as rats. Interesting.
2: interesting. All right, a lot here. We're not going to get even close to all of it, but we'll keep doing it. Rob's (laughs) in surprise. Hi, Rob.
1: Oh, hi, you guys. Um, I don't even know where to begin I know.
2: (laughs) I know. Um, I know.
1: I guess my original thought when I heard Eric talking about, you know, woke, evil, and the fact that he doesn't really listen to talk radio anymore was I wanted to encourage him to listen more because that's how you learn But I I think he was focusing more on the woke part than, you know, the end result of wokeism, which obviously, you know, is the the evil part, you know, anti-freedom, anti-individual, anti-American, anti-everything we stand for. Now, to me, that signifies evil, and I'm not going to belittle or degrade anything that Eric is thinking about. I I think that's just kind of an important point. And then I started thinking about... um, I finished that philosophy course at uh, Hillsdale. Uh, they finished up on C.S. Lewis, The Crisis of the West, The Evolution of Man, um, Men Without Chest, and all that kind of stuff. And, and there were some takeaways from that, I think, that sort of applies. Um, when C.S. Lewis says, you know, the right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate such sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft ed. So, you know, and again, maybe that sort of applies. I don't know. But anyway, I got an eighty-five on the final. Just thought you might know that. <laughs>
2: you can do better.
1: I know. I. I but you know, I. How I, I, a student
2: I, of this show, not to mention a regular <laughs> participant, gets mm-hmm. a gets a B in Hillsdale's political philosophy course. Is kind of a, a kind of a reflection on me, Rob.
1: Well, no, but remember, <laughs> Gerald Ford was a B student at the University of Michigan, and he he did okay for himself, I guess, right?
3: I I, I will admit, I, maybe, I, I myself am a B student more often than not. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh-huh.
1: and a lot of it is just you know I I was never a, a real egghead academic focused on everything. I mean, I was kind of a generalist, and so you get involved in a lot of different
3: things. <laughs>
1: um, but but. And and that's not an excuse. I guess it's just that, you know, you have your brain full of other things. Um, I was gonna talk about some other things, but it's probably not appropriate now, like the CIA recruiting. Call paper.
2: tomorrow. Call tomorrow. Wave the rule, call tomorrow.
1: Okay, we'll all right. Do that.
2: Good. I'm Seth, he's Lou. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show. Having an interesting conversation that uh Embraces notions of good and evil with Lewis Hallman, a little different, but uh, very um, of great interest to you based on the phone calls. Doug is in Maricopa. Hi, Doug. Well,
5: good afternoon, gentlemen. Good
2: afternoon, sir. Hello, Doug.
5: Um, I, I I would like to say this is a, a very fascinating show, but that's just the standard description for this. You're very show. kind. It's always, it's always extraordinary. You're kind. But I wanted to press this a little different. Uh Lewis, I enjoyed your um, contributions here. It's just wonderful. but I wanted to take let's just take what you guys were talking about about good and evil. Um, I, I believe man has a need to define the, the universe often in good and evil, uh, no matter what culture you're in and all our laws are based upon our, our culture's decision of what is, is good and bad. But the left understands this. I want to apply it politically. Where I think we have lost, um, if, you know, most of the battles and most of the institutions for the last 40 years is because of what this gentleman was talking about earlier, uh, that started all this wonderful conversation in that we have tended to be a little bit, have a little bit more passivity in pushing any of our values. We're always a little bit more quiet and the left understands that moral clarity and moral urgency is a great thing politically because it allows uh, it pushes people to feel good about and clear about what they believe and it can move people and I think if you have one person is very morally clear and very that's why they bring everything up to a crisis. It has to be morally clear and very obvious and then you have someone speaking in the fog and very passive. The morally clear and intense argument will very most often win. And that's my exp- one of my explanations of why I believe we lost most of these institutions.
3: You know, Doug, I, I think you're dead on there. The Certainly the rhetoric of the left is often more compelling when it comes to making these kinds of moral cases, at least at the most surface level. But there was something else that you said that actually uh, kind of sent my brain spinning. And it was... Uh, with regards to having a common morality across societies, and I'm not I'm not actually sure that that's a hundred percent true, but I certainly see a thread in it. And what I mean by that is this: that uh, morality seems to to require society to exist. There there isn't much of a morality if you are the only entity that exists, and so because it, it has to interact with some some level of reciprocity in in some sense, but. It occurs to me that the form and function of that society will shape its morality. And let me see if I can give you an example. So if you were to imagine a a society in the desert, perhaps one of the most evil things that you could do amongst that society would be something regarding wasting water, for instance, because the knock-on effects would be horrific. There are certainly elements across humanity that share evil. We don't like murderers. We don't like thieves, generally. Uh, And and so to that extent, I think that there is a very – or at least a a broadly universal component to to our morality. But I think that there is almost some merit to the case that morality is very different cross-culturally just because of these sort of small uh, context-driven parts of society.
2: Is your point – let me see if I understand the both of you. I may not. Is your point, gentlemen, that there could be probably a fair amount of agreement transculturally on certain kinds of
3: evils? Yes, that's my point. At
2: least. Almost every culture has a definition of murder which is criminal, right, or immoral. Uh, yes, but the stealing of water from the desert may be more evil in Phoenix than, than in, in Michigan.
3: Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. 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 Potentially, uh, um, but what's very interesting, though, again, is that you you have this notion that the left, by being able to advance a very surface level, attractive, very universalist position at all times, that then is non exclusionary in its morality, allows them to convert more easily than something more grounded and more um, consistent.
2: Well, let me let me well, let me Doug, let me take the break and you stay on yeah. and come back with us on the other side of the break because I want to talk about how certain things here um collide. So the feminist movement at a certain point in time would denounce uh anti-feminine laws, let's say. Um or let's just take an an easy example of um Of uh, the way uh, certain um, uh, Muslim societies treat young women. okay, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Female circumcision. Once upon a time, the feminist movement would have universally denounced it. Today? Eh, Not so sure. Cultural relativism. Let's come back on that. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're tired of the power increases in your utility bills and thinking about going solar, I want you to check out my friend Solar Sandy, portions of this show, which she sponsors. Solar Sandy brought integrity back to solar in Arizona, and she did another thing, too. She actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so critically important when going solar. You do it the right way, and that is with Solar Sandy. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back into your pocket. If you sign up with her now, she will pay your power bills for one year and your solar panel payments for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. That's right, a $1,000 signing bonus, solar panel payments covered for one year, and of course, your regular power bill as well. Read the testimonials on her website, com. They're amazing. She can do appointments by Zoom or in person? To get started, go to AskSolarSandy.com and let Sandy do all the work or call 623-850-8229. Having an epistemological discussion with Doug and Lewis here on The Nature of Evil, Lewis, were you in the middle of a point or was I or was Doug? So
3: you had just brought up uh, female genital mutilation Mm -hmm. and were talking about the fact that in prior years, the left would have had one voice on that position, right. which is that this is this practice is abhorrent. Mm-hmm. And now it seems that we are increasingly seeing people make excuses for other cultures in the guise of some kind of cultural relativism, mm-hmm. that, that we do not have the right to go in and meddle in their own domestic affairs.
2: Right. I think there's a yeah. schizophrenia in the woke movement, Doug such that
3: feminists
2: in the 60s would have decried the mutilation. Today they don't know whether to stand up for women or Muslims. They don't know who the other is that they want to be on the side of at this given moment.
3: I I would actually argue that it's—oh, sorry, Doug. Go ahead. Doug, go 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 ahead, then then I'll have Lewis. Lewis. Go ahead, Doug.
5: Okay. Well, I think we also have to understand that what you're seeing uh, is that it's basically a tool— that is used by the left, that the tool uses relativism as a way to disarm us, that we fall weak and we hold back. And then they step forward, you notice their answer to being not morally and to being morally relative is also moral clarity. They put their moral clarity yes, in so of there. Of course,
2: they use the language of and it more so, than we do.
5: Right. Yes. Yeah. And so it's kind of a weapon that gets a little self-destructive because the early feminism was about, you know, equality of rights, but they don't put down the weapon of it um, needing a clarity and needing a crisis because emotionally that's how they always advance. So as soon as you begin to get rid of a problem, they have to keep the intensity up, the clarity and the, the frightening nature of it up so that we stay disarmed. And then we we back off and they advance with clarity. And so really it's a tool and a weapon that we are only coming to grips with that we can't fall back and uh, hide when they advance and add clarity. We have to meet clarity with clarity.
3: So I, I actually, Doug, I, I, I agree with quite a lot that you said there. But where I see the root of this issue, and I, I think I disagree slightly with Seth too, is that it comes down to a focus on individual versus collective rights and individual versus collective morality, in fact. And so, you know, when we have the the older model of it where we would all universally agree that the practice of female genital mutilation is abhorrent, um, this is done out of a conceit that focuses on individual rights and individual liberty. But now I think increasingly our issue is that we at least the left at least has embraced a collective morality where it is the cultures themselves that are being judged and the cultures themselves have moral standing in excess of the individuals that constitute them. So, when we se- so the reason that they are able to excuse the the cutting of the rose and to decry all western efforts to intervene is to say no, you are violating that culture's right of autonomy. And because they believe that, that there is a distinct collective morality separate from and superior to an individual's morality, there's not really a lot of fighting that fight. At least we can't use the terms that they present to do so. We have to to sort of reformulate the conversation around this if we want to make any kind of progress, I think.
2: Uh, Doug, a final word or is – well,
5: what, what, what is terribly disturbing, uh, Lewis, is when you say you're disagreeing with me, and I actually agree with you in our disagreement. Um, <laughs> I I agree with your point totally. I think that we need to, in terms of how we apply it uh, politically, is that we have to pull back to the mutilation of the individual. We have to get, say that I, I think we too often disarm ourselves and drop the, the harm done to the woman and the individual, because then we start saying, I'm not Islamic folk, and we bite into their argument, and then they move us off our debate, and we just fall into describing their evil, which, if once we're on their turf, we have very little to argue about that will advance any of our agenda.
3: No, I couldn't agree more. We need a modern, profound way to argue for the supremacy of the individual. That, that is absolutely yes. correct.
2: Well, one way to think about the supremacy of the individual is to look at the way this country founded itself, which was on individual rights. Um, One of the interesting things about the societies we live in now that we want to judge good or evil or not is what the woke has done with the issue of slavery, for example. I think it, for example, interesting to put it no higher that the left is more animated by a portion of this country that had slavery that ended 160 years ago, but will defend a country that today engages in active slavery. I, I, I find. I'm, I'm of course speaking of China. I, I, I just find. I just find that psychological i find it um i find that kind of self-loathing the most interesting thing about this debate because we can do something about slavery right now or we can misconstrue misstate distort its import and meaning here when it ended as i say over a century and a half ago We'll come back with some concluding thoughts. I'll be right back. If you, uh, didn't get a chan- if you didn't get a chance to get on air today, we did leave some folks on hold here as we concluded. Uh, call back tomorrow. Let us know. We'll put you right on. I apologize. Lewis and I have had a wonderful hour here with you all on a little political philosophy. I'll let you sum up, Lewis, and then I'll give my final
3: word. So a lot of the conversation that we've had for the last hour about the nature of evil has really sort of reflected the divide that we see in this country between sort of conservative ideology and morality and this new and evolving progressive and woke ideology and morality. And I I think I'd, I'd like to wrap up by offering my main critique of wokeism. Wokeism is effectively attempting to categorize and catalog human oppression by splitting us into a number of different uh, uh, facets, our race, our sex, you know, all all the rest of these. And the thing that the woke scolds fail to realize every time is that there are an infinite number of dimensions upon which we can oppress one another. Mm -hmm. And if you were to actually then follow through with their demented little mental exercise to its logical conclusion – you would then find that these le- these different uh, uh, oppressed identities, black, able-bodied, cisgender, yada yada, if you keep fractionating that down, you will end up with a list of about 8 billion different identities. The individual, in fact, being the end result of this process. And so we then find that the, the end result of wokeism is the supremacy of the individual if only they were willing to follow it through. And so my my challenge is, is how do we then articulate this point in a way that the woke scolds can understand? How do we show them that the things that they want to guarantee, the things that they want to achieve can be found through an alternative lens that actually wholly subsumes much of their complaint? And I think that that we have to make the case not aggressively, not tribalistically, but in a way that then sort of softly supersedes their ability to provide for themselves politically. They have to find the answers they're looking for here and not from their own leaders. That's how we move them.
2: That's um, pretty hard to improve on, so I won't even attempt to. Thank you, Louis. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth and God bless you all and class dismissed.